now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. This season, titled Numbers, will discuss how researchers and scientists are using data to help forensic professionals characterize their results. Today you will hear from Dr. Paul Speaker, an associate professor at West Virginia University, discuss the Foresight Program. Dr. Speaker will describe how the Foresight Program helps crime laboratories manage their finances and track their performance by using data. This episode will stress the importance of language and how it can help a crime lab to persuade policymakers. Funding for this episode is brought to you by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to the Just Science Podcast. We're here at the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors in Dallas, Texas in early May, recording a, a range of podcasts on a variety of topics. Today, we're going to speak with Paul Speaker from the West Virginia University School of Business. Paul has been involved in the Foresight Project to improve how crime laboratories manage performance improvement. Is that a fair summary of that, Paul? Yeah, the, the, I mean, the whole idea of Project Foresight was to establish some business metrics, some standards across forensic laboratories, and we really begin to think of it as an industry. You know, our original mantra was, let's find out what works and keep it and spread the word and change what's not working well. And so that's been the focus, and we drift in whatever direction our participating laboratories send us. You're coming out of the School of Business. You're not coming out of the Department of Forensic Science, right? Yes. Do you work across in other industries in a similar way, or have you? Well, the last decade has been primarily forensic science, although I'm also working with public health labs because they heard about what we were doing and wanted to establish something similar to that. But my background really is analyzing banking and looking for efficiencies in the banking sector. So you can kind of split my own career into roughly into thirds. So the first third was all looking at banking and econometric modeling. The, mm -hmm. the next third was administrative, where I ran our graduate programs in the college. Did a number of things there, and then the last third has been back to the finance department. But my return to finance happened right about the same time that the Forensic Science Initiative began at West Virginia University. So at the time, ASCLAD was looking to break away on its own to become its own organization. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, really had been run by the FBI. And they wanted the freedom to really explore the topics that they wanted. And I was asked by the dean of our college to help out. And part of it was, you know, we knew Max Hauck. So trying to help out ASCLAD with budgeting, David Dolly from the university to help with uh, strategy, and Dick Riley from the college to help a little bit with forensic accounting. And then uh, Maria Mancini, who ran our executive education, kind of had us all in her stable of people that did things. And we were quite fortunate. Uh, Max Hauck tapped in with the Forensic Science Initiative and knew how to write grants and to talk to the right people. Sure. And we were able to put this proposal together to help make that split for ASCLAD as an organization. Well, that's really interesting. So that was probably the early to mid-2000s, I'm guessing? Yeah, I, I'm trying to think. The conversation started around 2005, 2006. Mm -hmm. We got Foresight really up and running 
2007 and 8. It's important, I think, to give Max credit. I remember, because I was at NIJ at the time, and really Max made it a point to make sure that we understood just the sheer importance of improving forensic science laboratories as businesses, to take a more rigorous view of how they operated as organizations and as business organizations. You know, I think that the work in Foresight really was sold on that basis, and I think it's a very rational one, a very important one. Yeah, the argument was good, and the timing was also very good. So the first Foresight grant was for the 2009 fiscal year. So if you think of what's happening there from you go 2007 where everything is great, you know, the economy is just booming, to 2008 when the stock market falls in half. Suddenly you've got a lot of serious questions about budgets that, you know, particularly the public sector is watching things fall very, very uh, seriously and whatever municipality is trying to deal with this, suddenly their tax revenues were mm -hmm. being cut rather dramatically and now you really have to sing for your supper. Sure. And having this project underway where people were very interested in learning about things, you know, what am I going to say when I'm arguing my budget in front of the legislature? What can I tell them? And what we had early on was the knowledge that most of these people that they were talking to, I mean, the people that really drove, say, a state legislature, were business people. And we were saying, we're going to arm you with their language. We're going to be able to talk about your return on investment and going to be able to talk about things like efficiency and cost effectiveness so that when they ask those questions, they're going to compare you to art museums and to, you know, fire services, and you're competing with everybody. To be able to justify your existence became a really primary motivation. Oh, yeah. Well, I can appreciate that. I actually spent eight years in the Maryland state legislature myself, so I uh, definitely appreciate that perspective. You are competing, and sometimes in ways you do not expect. Well, and that's always been one of the classic issues is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, around election time, the public can see more police cars. Right. They can't see a bigger budget to the laboratory. So for the laboratory, it is a much bigger fight to be able to say, look, this is what we do. And I think, you know, the proliferation of CSI shows did not hurt that people had more of an awareness of the background because of all of those programs that you had on there. Sure. Now, they also had their negative effects. You know, they're the pluses and the minuses sure. with any of these shows. So Foresight in particular, attempts to define performance metrics. Yeah, a lot of different things. So we modeled ourselves after the quadrupole study in Europe. So four countries had gotten together and really helped to set the stage in terms of basic language. The great reality was when we first got together, and it was a bunch of us from the university with representatives from 17 different labs, and it turns out for everything that I knew to be true, mm -hmm. There were 17 different interpretations. <laughs> right. So, so it was really about definition of terms as much as anything the else. The language was a critical one so that we're measuring the same things. So a really good sense of that was after the quadrupole study, one of our uh, participants, it was North America, so it wasn't just the U.S. We had two Canadian laboratories involved. One of the Canadian laboratories had really been beat up in uh, metaphoric sense. They sure. were in front of Parliament and asked after the quadrupole study, well, their turnaround time for DNA is this. What is yours? And they quoted a number which was much bigger. And they really got publicly chastised for that. But they were two different measures. 
So one measure said, well, we're going to count turnaround time from the last piece of evidence into a case. That's what Quadrupole stated, whereas they were counting from the first piece of evidence. So you had very, very different metrics. So it became critical that everybody was measuring the same thing. We got to having our participants tell the counting story, create a case for us, and tell how you counted everything so we can all get on the same page. And, and it takes a while. One of our examples, the first year of data that came out, we analyzed it, and it turned out that one of our participants, when it came to uh, fingerprint identification, they were 10 times more productive than everybody else. And that's because they took a 10-print card and counted it as 10, and everybody else <laughs> counted it as 1. But it really became the critical part, is yeah. you had these things and to figure out how to be able to count and what things were going to matter. There were a lot of things that we asked for. We didn't know how it was going to come out. So do we look at productivity in a per case basis or per sample basis or per square footage for the laboratory or how do you take in the geographic size of a region? What matters? Sure. So we asked a lot of things so that we could try to figure those out. I mean, it's very fundamental to so many things, especially though, frankly, resources. We've talked about NIJ. NIJ has its backlog reduction programs. What Capacity the heck does it Capacity enhancement mean? programs. Capacity enhancement. Yes, well, either one, is, either one is relevant. What is a backlog and what is capacity? Yeah. I mean, how do you, those are very fraught terms. Yeah, so yeah, well, and, and we went by some of the existing definitions. So I understand it's arbitrary to say backlog is a 30-day limit, but that was fine. You know, mm -hmm. we were fine to go with whatever the definition was. You wanted the consistency. So it's right. not so much that it is backlogged, but just to get a sense at what point in time is it a potential problem. I remember just a year ago speaking at ASCLAD and saying, you named it the wrong program. It should not be the uh, backlog reduction program because we were discovering things about what was happening as you attempted to reduce backlog. You were speeding up processing which was sending a message to submit more cases or more items in a case or whatever it might be. You'll never win this game is what it looked like. So it's, been, it's just been a fascinating process. And for me, I've been teaching at the collegiate level. I just finished my 40th year of teaching. Mm -hmm. So for people to hear this, they'll realize how old I am. But there are things that I've taught theoretically from day one that you cannot observe in the for-profit side. And I get to discover those here. So all the work I did in banking, a lot of it was concentrating on a concept known as economies of scale. Mm -hmm. you know, we would ask the question in banking, if you looked at it today, you could find in, in a town a bank that has 100 million in assets. You could find another one that has 20 billion. And you can still find at the national level trillion dollar banks. Mm -hmm. How in the world can they coexist and be efficient? And so we asked those questions in the early part of my career. So if you want to go back and look at things that I published in the uh, 80s and 90s, sure. they were all about that. Well, I'm looking at exactly the same issues here in forensics. What it comes down to is in banking is it isn't just economies of scale, it's economies of scope. It's what's the package of things that you do. So that smaller, small town bank will have a correspondent relationship, say, with the Bank of America or mm -hmm. you know, somebody very large to provide those other services. They just don't do those. Whereas Bank of America is counting on this huge range of customers of, of smaller banks that they're able to deal with. So we go and we look at these same questions with forensics. 
I mean, how can you coexist where you have large national laboratories, some very, very big state laboratories, but some very small state laboratories and some small city or county or regional laboratories? How did they coexist? And it's a different answer because they coexist because of jurisdictions rather than markets. Right. So a market would force these out. So one of the things that we saw fairly early on that when you want to talk about numbers and data coming out was something that excited me to no end. Now, I am a scientist, but I'm a dismal scientist. So. <laughs> because economics is yes. a dismal science. Yes, it's yeah. named after John Malthus. Well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Econ Talk uh, podcast, yes. which is a wonderful, wonderful podcast about economics. But, well, they're fascinating. Yeah. But what we get to see, if you're based on the jurisdiction and rather the market, then you know this idea of a U-shaped cost curve, and, and that's the theory. I know that theoretically in every for-profit market, but anybody who's not at the bottom of that in terms of average cost, you've knocked out of business. They cannot well, compete. Explain the U-shaped cost theory for yeah. The, so, the so what it does there is this notion of economies of scale. You want to be the right size. So there is a certain size that you can be. Think of any businesses out there, and think of, for example, a Starbucks. If you thought of a coffee shop, there's a certain size that it is, a little bit of range around that. Mm -hmm. But compare that to, say, a big box retailer like a, a Walmart. Well, you'll notice that Walmart and Target have pushed out a lot of other businesses because they got very efficient at the size that they are. There's a right size right. You know, for any kind of business. The same thing goes, you can look at you know, gas station or restaurant. There oh, are, yeah. Res restaurants are a classic example, right? Because absolutely. The, you can have the best chef in the world, the highest concept, but if you don't have enough tables, enough space in your restaurant to put enough tables to get the cash flow to pay the bloody rent, <laughs> it's but not going to to work, right? But if you have too many, mm -hmm. then what happens? You begin to suffer on the quality of the food where you're trying to get so much out there and stretch it and handle all of this high volume. There's a right size. What now, is that applicable to crime labs? Is Absolutely. there a right size? There is a size at which you can get it. And, and it suggests some other things that might happen. And we've seen some of that coming out of, out of our study. If you're going to be based on a jurisdiction, the right size, what it means by right size is lowest costs. So lowest average cost to be able to do that. And it's going to be influenced by a variety of things, the population, the crime rate, whatnot as to what you can do. So we try to make a distinction for every laboratory between what is cost effective and what is efficient. So efficiency talks about what's your average cost for your size laboratory, for the jurisdiction that you're dealing with. And so I tease you know, my friend Jay Henry about this. I say, Jay, I said, you know, Utah would be a much lower cost provider of forensic services if you could just drum up a little bit more business. You know? <laughs> and, and of course, it's- They're it's, very well behaved in Utah. Yes, it has very low crime rate and it has you know, a size population that it's not going to get there. But what they're able to do is they're able to, in some areas, to work with some of the neighboring states to say, wait a second. So we saw this happen in Canada, for example. Uh, we did a study on all of Canada, and it turned out that in things like trace evidence, you've got a population of roughly, we'll call it 40 million people in Canada, a very, very big country. But you have primarily three laboratory systems that are servicing that, you know, Quebec, Ontario, and the RCMP. They didn't all need to be doing trace evidence. If they could send it to one lab, every one of them, would lower their cost. Sure. And so there is some aspect of right sizing that can occur that we learn from it. So we try to look for every laboratory to this efficient frontier. And that's what we would refer to as this U-shaped curve. For your size, what's cost effective? 
Mm -hmm. Okay, what is efficient from for that size? Overall cost effectiveness is if you can reach perfect economies of scale to get down to the bottom of the curve, the lowest average sure. cost. Uh, now that wouldn't necessarily. There are other types of costs though that a crime lab that d don't have anything to do with money, right? Oh, there's all there are all kinds of things, and we're looking at it was what we do is we combine the budgetary information with their casework information and their personnel information. Mm -hmm. uh, so everybody that we use in the study uh, has a certain high sense of quality. So ASCLAB lab certified or 17025 certified. So we've met at least certain quality standards with that. And, sure. and there are, are, are certainly are going to be costs with that. There are also opportunity costs that you have. So you're a laboratory and Let's say you know you've got a twenty million dollar budget. Your the demand for your services is much more than twenty million dollars you're going to be able to handle. So you've got to make choices. You've got to say, well, do I go into this case where the science says I should be examining, say, trace evidence? So mm -hmm. perhaps you have uh, a sexual assault, and uh, you know the DNA evidence is the the uh, perpetrators already said, no, we had consensual sex. Mm -hmm. And you want to be able to do the trace evidence to say, yes, but those, the tears that we have in the clothing or this or that is indicative of an assault. Well, those are expensive things to do when you start doing examination of, of right. hairs and fibers. The and, political benefit and the legal yeah. benefit and things like that need to be pretty substantial to justify. Yeah, and so what happens is on, and when you're on a fixed budget, if you spend Five thousand more dollars to do the trace evidence work for something that's very important, mm -hmm. and the science can handle it. It means you're not spending five thousand on something else, right? And so that might mean that there were fifteen cases of with latent prints that you could have done instead. So it becomes a really tough question for the managers of the lab is is how to prioritize and you know what, what things to let go. Um, Right. And so while the science may allow you to do something, should you do that, particularly when you're faced with limited resources, that to do one thing means you're not doing other things. And it's a tough call. It's, it's sure. a very, very tough call. Let's just say in general in the past, okay, before there was foresight, it would have been very difficult to make that decision on the basis of any objective yes. metric, right? Mm -hmm. Because you wouldn't necessarily even know what your cost would be, let alone what the benefit might be, right? So, Absolutely. So part of it is just being able to have your processes in place well enough to be able to identify what the cost would be of taking a particular action. Yeah, and it doesn't mean it's a bad choice. And, and we don't say that. We say be armed with the information to make that choice. I think a great example of this is New Zealand. New Zealand has a really interesting process because they're a for-profit, similar in the sense to say our Federal Reserve is a government-based okay. for-profit. Like the Brits uh, experimented with that for a little while at least, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and in New Zealand though, it's very, very interesting. So when they went to that model, so basically you've got one laboratory and one police force. Mm -hmm. And so the police force has all of the money and they order up, these are the things that we want. Well, once it wasn't viewed as a free good, laboratory services, one of the things in reading the annual reports of the ESR, the mm -hmm. uh, environmental side that, that does the laboratory work, the, the lament, they said, they're just not ordering that much trace evidence work anymore because this was the bill. The bill was going to be whatever, and it was so much higher than other things. So there's a bit of lament for some science that is not being used. 
But it's a choice. It's the most basic thing in economics, but it's the economic problem. Sure. We have unlimited desires and limited resources. You know, those are, are the choices. So if you can make more informed choices where you can say, yes, I want to do this more expensive procedure, but I understand what the cost is. It's an opportunity given up to do some other things. And you can look at that and say, this is the right decision, rather than simply saying, we're able to do this, so let's just do this and let everything else wait. It just helps provide more informed choices, not dictating what those choices need to be. So here's a question for you. The forensic science laboratory, in some respects, has a really hard time determining what the benefit is. I mean, theoretically, you get a case, a case is given to you, and you can very easily determine what the costs are, but not necessarily the benefits, right? And uh, you're being told there's a benefit by the fact that the case is being sent to you. So it's, it's the prioritization of that can be very, very difficult. John Newman from the Toronto Laboratory uh, gave a talk this morning where he addressed that specifically, how they were changing their prioritization. And they basically put things into three categories, you know, urgent, we really need this to jump to the, uh, the front of the pack. You know, things that were uh, you know, helping to actually catch who it was versus these are support items, things that are just more confirmatory, and they can, they can wait a little bit longer. But they were able to put everything in where it gets some sense of prioritization with that. Sure. And you know, it's nice to have systems in place that can tell you to do those kinds of things, to say, this is what we're going to move towards first. And, and I think there's been a lot more awareness of that. That's less something that, that we've looked at uh, mm-hmm. on the Foresight uh, study, but it's one where somebody like John has been able to say, we're using the Foresight data, though, to help us make our markers on those as to you know, what sure. are the expectations in terms of time. And so this prioritization issue is not a straightforward one. It can be very, very difficult. It's very, very tough to get numbers that are going to be comparable. But once you have those standards, the opportunity to be able to learn, you know, as we saw with uh, Jonathan Newman's work today, that's what they use. They can say, here's the comparison. And when I give him his data, I've converted everybody's to the Canadian dollar so mm-hmm. that he can look at what he sees and this is what it would be. The same thing happens to every other currency, whether it's euros or Australian dollars or whatever it is Mm -hmm. that we're dealing with, we make the conversion so they can look at theirs and say, ah, here are things that are comparable around the world. So how many uh, labs right now are using Foresight as a tool? We had uh, last year's study, there were 136 laboratories, and so it had been steadily climbing since 2011. How many of those are American laboratories? Uh, 116. Okay. So I actually now with 20 international laboratories, I have an opportunity to start to talk about differences. So what are your future plans for Foresight, and and how is the FTCOE work going to connect to that? Currently, we're working on uh, Foresight 2020 projects. So Max Halk is working as the manager of that project, and, and I'm serving as a technical consultant on that. The most difficult part is for people to extract the data in the form that we need it from their limb systems. So this is a freeware that gives to anybody using the major limbs providers or even some homemade limb systems. We have things that they're going to be able to extract and easily submit the data, have dashboards that tell them up to the moment, you know, what is going on with that. So we anticipate a big jump in the number. Uh, With uh, what we've got here is a couple proposals that we've put in 
because the first of these that I'm working on is we want the data to be available to more people. We'd mm -hmm. love to be able to see other researchers out there. So we have a few people that are working with the data, and, and as it is now, people have come to me and said, I've got this particular problem, and I can anonymize it and say, good, we, here's what you have for those needs. We'd love to see more people from the business side or from you know, forensic science come in and, and be able to work with the data. So I think working with the Center of Excellence allows that to happen, to say, let's find a way to be able to do this more conveniently. Mm -hmm. uh, my biggest problem has been you know, finding the funding sources to be able to deal with this. Because any one laboratory, while they will benefit by it, they would basically be funding all laboratories to be able to do that. So you know, NIJ was a fortunate place to start, where it really provided great representation for the industry as a whole. And, and it's seeking those things. The uh, uh, Laura and John Arnold Foundation, mm -hmm. the grant that they've provided for Foresight 2020 through ASCLAD, been tremendous to keep this work going. Working with the Center of Excellence is critical for mm -hmm. us to be able to do this. Uh, as it is now, when a laboratory submits its data to us and we analyze all the data, that's my time sure. being able to do this. And, and yes, part of it is you know the research mandate is part of what I do. But what research I'm working on is often going to be grant related. You know, you bring in the grant money to be able to pay for the time to be able to get these things done. While they're not terribly expensive, there is an expense to that. When a laboratory comes in and we've analyzed the entire industry, they get back from us a report that may be anywhere from 75 to 105 pages in length that details how they fit in specifically to all of the industry-wide data. So it's easy for the lab to read and interpret, and we include their individual time series data. How are they performing over time? We've been able to do it thus far at no expense to the individual laboratories. But this is where the Center of Excellence really helps us out. So one of the projects that we're uh, going to be dealing with this year is to look at individualizing the return on investment from various activities. And that means going out and gathering things from the literature that have talked broadly about return on investment from, say, DNA database we'll look at first. And then to individualize that. So we can combine our cost information, our economies of scale information, and looking at our efficient frontier and go ahead and say, okay, you may be more costly because you're a smaller jurisdiction. So your return on investment in DNA database is, is 890%. Mm -hmm. That's what I found for one of my smaller labs. It's not a bad return on investment if you well, can do it. Compare it to uh, Apple computer at 28%. Yeah, which isn't a bad investment either. Right. <laughs> but then look at somebody who's, in a sense, at that ideal size. Mm -hmm. We're seeing return on investment as high as 3,800%. I mean, it's, it's amazing what's going on here. So those are the kinds of things that the Center of Excellence is really permitting us to do, is to be able to say, keep this going, go out there and combine what we know from foresight, data available to others, begin to connect with studies that have been done on a much broader basis, and be able to tell each individual laboratory, when you speak to your legislature and they want to know what your return on investment is, and they come over and say, well, we were going to uh, put this much into the fine museum of art because their return on investment is 90 to 1. 
-hmm. and you turn around and say, well, our return on investment is 3,000 something to one. It puts it into a perspective when there is competition for the same public spending. And so sure. those are the kinds of things we're looking at now. And, and hearing those kinds of returns on investment, it makes me think, when I, I served in the legislature, there was a fellow who actually was a a banker, but he ran his own community bank in Carroll County, if you know yes, where Carroll I know County Carroll is. County. And he was on the Appropriations Committee. And if you told him that you could do a return on investment, if you actually had that, you are speaking his language. Absolutely. He would, he would get that immediately. He'd be like, okay, I'm signing off right now. Whatever it is that you want to get that ROI, I'm behind that. Like bankers are, in some respects, like a lot of legislators, not necessarily politicians. A good banker is not necessarily looking for the best idea. The best banker is looking for the best spreadsheet, <laughs> right? And, yeah, you have, and have data to back things up. That's exactly right. And in the end, if you're sitting on an appropriations committee, that's what you're going to be looking for, somebody who can bring you that spreadsheet. This is something we learned on the very first year that we had data uh, mm -hmm. submitted. And so I sent things out to our participating labs. I think we had uh, 11 of our labs was, were able to give us data the first year. And one of them called me the following week because he was about to appear in front of the legislative committee that handled their funding. For, it was a state lab. And he asked, is there any chance I can put you on speed dial? And so when they had their morning session, he called me at lunchtime. And I'm sitting at my computer looking at the data. said, can you tell me this, 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 and this? I got these questions. And it was a state that was having a 5% across the board cut. Right. And he called me. I had the answers for all of those. And it was the business people on the Appropriations Committee for the state legislature. And sure enough, he got a 10% increase where everybody else was getting cut. As he could <laughs> say, this is what we're doing. This is what things cost. I can speak your language, and I have these. So it can be very, very valuable to have those kinds of uh, pieces of information. So some of the people who are listening are going to be people who are in a position to make the decision for a laboratory to engage in foresight. How would somebody who wants to become a participating foresight laboratory get started? Well, it's pretty simple. At the College of Business and Economics at West Virginia University. So you go to the website BE, for Business and Economics, so be.wvu.edu. So the, our college site will come up there, and there'll be a tab across the top that says Centers. Mm -hmm. You just click on that and you scroll down and there's the Center for Forensic Business Studies. And in there, there's a Foresight page. So the Foresight page will have all that information. It'll have the form that we fill out, LabRat. It'll have copies of our annual reports. So you get an idea of what you receive in returns. So what I do every year is when I'm releasing that year's reports, I post the prior year's report. So if you just want the information, you're going to get it a year late. If you want to participate, you get it you know, right hot off the press <laughs> and able to work with that. So it's sure. really very simple. And then anyone uh, with questions on this should send me an email. And you can find that also on the site. But to date, there's been no charge mm -hmm. uh, to any laboratory to be involved with this. Is We want the data. We want the information. And, and of course, with Foresight 2020, because it's a freeware, we'll make it easier to abstract that as that's moving forward. But uh, I have a lot of laboratories that have joined at a later date. And what they've done is they've actually filled out the LabRat form for several years. Mm -hmm. So they can get a little bit of a time series view of what's going on you know, from within their laboratory. But it's been rather dramatic. The other encouragement is 
Max Hauck is co-editor of Forensic Science Policy and Management, so it's uh, ASGLAD's official journal. And we've got a list on our Foresight page of the research, but I think we've got 28 publications to date that have come out of this. And part of it will tell you how to use the information. You know, So I get all this data, what the heck do I do with it? And some of it is success stories where somebody's been able to very effectively put it into play, change things within the laboratory. Some of it is observations that we've had. And for us, it's great. It's a very fertile ground where somebody said, I'd really like to know this. Mm -hmm. Paper I did a couple years ago, for example, I was observing in the data that very few laboratories were leasing equipment. Well, the lease versus purchase decision is something I teach every semester. And it goes back to uh, some rather well-known paper in the Journal of Finance uh, by John McConnell and Bill Llewellyn about this decision. And basically what happens in leasing is all these public sector laboratories pay zero taxes. So if you buy, if you spend $120,000 on a uh, GC mass spec or whatever it might be, it costs you $120,000. Right. But if I'm an individual outside the laboratory mm-hmm. and you I'm- depreciate it. And I'm in, yes, mm-hmm. the 35% tax bracket mm-hmm. federally. And if at the state level, I'm in a 7% tax bracket, locally I've got a 3%, my 45% tax rate means I can take 45% off the talk. I, I can deduct it and mm-hmm. I can depreciate it. And suddenly, you and I can share something. I can make money and you can make money on this. So we wrote a paper about leasing and we talked to some folks about it. And we've got several laboratories that began to change how they did some things because of that. So we look for topics. We look for things that a laboratory might not have considered. Things that we know in looking at for-profit firms that could be of great benefit for the laboratories in the public sector. There's a lot of material out there. You said you mentioned 38 papers. There's your annual reports. What are the different ways that somebody can become more sophisticated and try to understand foresight and become uh, you know, more interested and more knowledgeable? Well, I think those annual reports are a great place to start. Now, uh, we published a paper in uh, early 2015, which took the data from a particular year and put it out there. You know, here's how to interpret some of those things. Mm -hmm. But it gives some very, very basic things. For example, there's a very basic technique in corporate finance called a DuPont expansion. And it really, it goes back to the company DuPont. So Mm -hmm. if you go back uh, literally 100 years right now, and uh, DuPont was what our Apple computer is right now. They were a company that was making so much money, it didn't know what to do with it. So what is Apple computer doing? They're buying other companies. I mean, if you're stuck with $130 billion in cash, but what do you do? So you start simply buying other people's ideas. You buy their companies. That's what DuPont was doing. DuPont 100 years ago, and if you're you know, familiar with the chemical company, it was dynamite. So 100 years ago, we're putting in the infrastructure in the US. We're building bigger ports. We're putting tunnels through mountains for railroads. We're doing all kinds of things. They were providing the dynamite. Mm. And so they had to figure out what to do with their money. And they had an opportunity to buy about a quarter stake in an up-and-coming company, 1917, General Motors. And it was boasting a return on equity that was really high. And it just sounded ridiculously high. They were trying to figure out how. And so what they did is one of the uh, salesmen for uh, DuPont who had gone to Carnegie Tech, he said, you know what? If you multiply anything by the number one, you get the same answer back. So he started multiplying return on equity, which is 
profit divided by your equity, uh, the amount that you, the owners have put up, he multiplied it by assets divided by assets, and sales divided by sales. And he broke it down. He took the numerator and denominator terms and recombined those. He said, well, the reason a company is profitable, one is its profit margin. Secondly is how risky it is. So is it financing by equity of the owners or by debt? That's risky. Right. And the third was by productivity, total asset turnover. What are you doing with the assets at your disposal? So he looked at that. Well, we did a similar kind of breakdown for laboratories. Their intent is not to earn a profit, okay? Mm -hmm. Or certainly for most laboratories, it's not. Right. It's to be able to provide as much throughput as they can with the resources that they're given, with quality. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about quality work here. So how do you break that down? Well. It turns out that what you're able to do in terms of your throughput is going to be affected to some extent by the local market conditions. So my, my favorite example of our original labs is you have to pay a higher salary in Orange County, California than you do in South Charleston, West Virginia. Reality. And part of your cost is going to be from those local market conditions. So that's a piece of it. But it's also productivity. How many cases or how many samples per worker are being handled in a particular unit of the laboratory? It's also going to be how you produce. So are you investing in a lot of capital equipment? Or are you spending your money for the now, you know, mainly through personnel? So we can break those down and we can show somebody how to deal with this. So coming back to your question, sure. with that background, if I'm running a unit in my laboratory, and let's suppose it's drug chemistry, you're you can look at what your productivity is in your laboratory versus other laboratories of similar size. You can look across everybody within the unit in terms of what they're able to do and how their productivity is looking. And you can look at things that can make those improvements. And that's what our papers are attempting to do, is to say, how can I take this in my world and make some changes and monitor some things and see if, if I've got a new idea to see, did it work? And do I have a potential problem? Is there something where I should focus my attention? Well, that's all fantastic, and it's such a rich area, and one that I hope that uh, some of the listeners take the time to really learn more about and delve into. You've done an excellent job telling us about it and getting into some of the details, but I think there's a lot more to be understood on this, and I hope this becomes the standard of practice in every forensic laboratory in the United States and around the world. Well, I think, and that's where Foresight 2020 was coming in, to make it easier for laboratories to do this, to not only know annually, but this this is a product that allows them to know for any period of time how they're doing. So they can look at their dashboard and be up to the moment, knowing right. how things are handled, that it becomes really routine kind of tool. And understand that when they change a process, when they put something new in place, they know what the impact is going to be, how it's going to make the organization hopefully more efficient and change their place on that U-curve. Yes, and then in hindsight, whether or not what they did worked, yes. they'll be able to look yes. at it. But yeah. you can make that determination. All right. Thank you very much, Paul Speaker from WVU. Uh, my pleasure. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Please visit the FTCOE's website at forensiccoe.org to learn more about this episode and about other knowledge transfer opportunities. 